Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. Amen. I, uh, I like to think when I travel that uh, I'm going to leave some things behind when I go. You know what I'm saying? I'm going to come back lighter than I went. I don't mean physically, ever. <laughs> but I, uh, a few years ago, we, uh, when we first started doing the trips to Israel, we recognized very early that one of the highlights was that morning that we go to the Jordan River and we do baptisms. And uh, though the first time that we experienced that together, it was kind of a new experience for all of us. Uh, in subsequent years, we've been able to say to the group, get ready, because <laughs> we want you to come back lighter than you went. And, and it's very symbolic. There's nothing magical about being baptized in Jordan River, but there is something very spiritually, psychologically, emotionally, mentally significant about standing on the banks of the Jordan River and, and walking down into the water and being immersed there and all of the power and the symbolism of burying the old life and being resurrected to new life and having old things washed away. And the idea of it's a turning point. I, I don't want to go back the same way I came. I don't want to carry some things on. And I think that an experience together as a congregation on a Sunday morning ought to be like that too. We ought to have the opportunity to leave some things behind, to, to lighten our load. Jesus speaks of it frequently, and the Scripture speaks of it frequently. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest unto your soul. It's an invitation to lay some things down, to lighten your heart, your mind, your spirit, your burden, whatever you're carrying. Humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that in due time he may lift you up. Cast all your cares upon him, because he cares for you. It's an invitation to let some things go. And my prayer today as we talk together about the blind spot of aggression is that you can let some things go. If there's ever a story that inspires aggression, it's the story of Joseph. I mean, Joseph is uh, treated in ways that you and I can only imagine, and so he contributes in the dysfunction. It's not like he's innocent in the whole process, but, but overall, he does emerge as sort of the, the evolving you know, protagonist in the story. He does uh, seem to mature and grow as the story unfolds. And when we left him, uh, he was on his way to prison. I don't know how many uh, remember, but uh, we left this story. So let me give you a quick recap. What's happened is that, first of all, at the beginning of this series, we visited, visited the generational dysfunction of this family, who happens to be the patriarchal family. And we talked about the blind spots of family habits, and we all have them, and God only uses dysfunctional families to accomplish his work in the world because there are no other kinds. And so we talked about the generational issues with Isaac and Jacob and now visited upon the 12 sons and, and the dysfunction and the favoritism and all the, all the things and, and, the, and the complete lack of empathy and emotional uh, quotient, the complete lack of any kind of sense of a propriety of what to say and what not to say so that petty jealousies are ripping this family apart. And finally, the brothers rise up and they act out against their younger brother who is the favorite of the father, who is getting unfair 
uh, sort of care and love and, and privilege that they're not getting, and they sell him into slavery. I mean, a lot of us have been mad at a sibling, but not that many of us have decided to sell them off. And we follow Joseph's story as he made his way to Egypt, and he's, he's sold into the house of Potiphar to be a, a servant in the household, and he rises to prominence, and he does well. And then uh, the wife of Potiphar decides that she likes him and she puts the moves on him. And though he says, no, 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 he ends up falsely accused and he ends up in prison. And that's where we left him, in prison. And when we begin the little piece of the narrative that's in prison, it's very fascinating because uh, the first thing we hear about his imprisonment is that the cupbearer and the baker of the king have been tossed into prison and the captain of the guard has asked Joseph to take care of them. So we don't know what's transpired. We, we don't know the timing. We don't know how long he was there. We just know that he's been there long enough that now the captain of the guard uses him as one of the trustees, and he's invited to take care of two very prominent prisoners, the cupbearer and the baker of the king. And, and so we're told that this sort of arrangement takes place, and, and then there's just one phrase, after a long, long time. I don't know about you, but I have trouble when God is inserting phrases like that in my life. Anybody else? <laughs> After a long, long time. We could editorialize here. After a long, long time when I had no idea what God was doing or if he was listening anymore. Oh, just me? Okay. After a long, long time, we're told that the baker and the cupbearer had a dream. And so they're troubled, and Joseph comes in to deliver their breakfast, and they are troubled. And he notices, and he says, what's going on? Oh, we had a dream, and there's nobody to interpret the dream. And he said, well, God is the interpreter of dreams. Tell me what you dreamed. And the cupbearer says, I had a dream, and in my dream there was a vine of three branches, and it bloomed and budded, and it bore fruit. And then I saw myself squeezing the ripened fruit into the cup of Pharaoh. And Joseph said, oh. Well, that means that in three days, the vine is three days. The three branches are three days. In three days, you're going to be restored to your job as the cupbearer of the king. Oh, good. And then the baker, encouraged by this good news, we're told in the narrative, tells his dream. I, ha I dreamed that there was a bas three baskets on my head, all filled with bread, and the top was filled with all kinds of baked goods, and the birds came, and they were eating the bread out of the top basket. And Joseph said, oh. That also means three days. In three days, it's not going to go that well for you. <laughs> you, you won't be restored. In fact, you'll be dispatched. <laughs> and it's quite graphic, and I won't go into all of it. It involves birds and other things. And then he turns to the cupbearer, and he says, When you're restored to Pharaoh's court, remember me. The next line Two years later. I just wanted you to get the transition of time. If there was ever a story that in, invites aggression, this is the story. Two years later, the cupbearer, having been restored to his job, brings the king his morning cup. And he notices that the king is troubled. And he said, what's wrong with you? And he said, I had a dream. And I've told all of my wise men and advisors, and none of them can tell me the dream. And, the, and he says, I'm so sorry. It seems I've been a little negligent. Two years ago, you, I had fallen out of favor with you, and you had me put in prison. And there was a guy there, and I had a dream, and he interpreted it. And Pharaoh said, send for him. And after he is bathed and shaved, that detail's in the story, isn't it? 
I don't know what kind of shape he was in before, but you're going to see the king now, so a bath and a shave is required. He comes before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, I've had this dream, and I need an interpreter. And he said, well, I don't know how to interpret dreams, but God does. So tell me the dream. Well, I had this dream, and I was standing next to the Nile, and seven fat, wonderful cows came up out of the water, and they grazed along the bank. And a little later, seven scrawny, terrible, horrible cows came up out of the water. I've never even seen cows this terrible in all of Egypt. And they ate up the seven healthy cows. But they were no fatter for it. Wouldn't you like to be the cow like that? (laughs) But I digress. (laughs) And then I woke up, Pharaoh said, and then I had another dream. And the other dream was about a a head of grain, and it came and it bloomed and it blossomed, and it was wonderful and full. And then there were seven other plants, and they bloomed and they withered in the wind. And Joseph said, it's the same dream. God is telling you twice because he's already decided it's going to happen. And this is what it means. The seven healthy heads of grain and the seven healthy cows represent seven years of plenty. And the seven weak cows and the seven withered grains of heads of grain represent seven years of famine. In this land, there will be seven years of plenty, and then there will be a devastating seven years of famine. God is warning you now. So what you must do is appoint someone, and you make a plan, and take one-fifth of the harvest in the years of plenty, so that then in the years of famine there will be food to eat in the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh says, who is wiser among us than this man and he appoints Joseph now to be in charge of everything and we're told that he begins a seven-year civil project to build storehouses and appoint commissioners and collect one-fifth of the harvest and the storehouses are built and they're filled and the time of famine comes and when people are crying out in hunger they open the doors and they begin to sell back the food but the famine hasn't just hit Egypt it's hit Canaan as well And Jacob and his ten sons who remain at home are starving. And finally, Jacob comes to his children and he says, Listen, uh, you got to go to Egypt. I hear there's food there. And you got to go and take some money. But I'm not sending Benjamin. I'm just sending nine of you because you're expendable. (laughs) He doesn't actually say that. (laughs) But he says, Benjamin can't go. The rest of you go get food for the family. And so the nine brothers make their way to Egypt And, of course, guess who they have to talk to in order to purchase food for their father? Their brother, Joseph. But they don't know it's their brother. But Joseph immediately recognizes them. And we're told in the storyline, he speaks to them harshly. (laughs) If there was ever a story to inspire aggression, it's this story. He speaks to them harshly. He accuses them of being spies. You just came to undermine the whole land of Egypt. You just came here. No, 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 no. We're, we're just simple farmers. We're from back in Canaan land. We have an aged father who's been through all kinds of tragedy. You can't believe it. Try me. We have a younger brother at home who's a, just the, the prize of his father. And Joseph says, okay, if you're telling the truth, I'll tell you what we're going to do. I'm going to have you leave one of the brothers here with me just as a gesture of goodwill. We'll put him in jail. You go home and you get your youngest brother and you come back and when you come back, I'll know you're telling the truth. And he chooses Simeon. I I don't know why. I wonder if Simeon was sort of the ringleader in that whole selling them to the Midianites and all that. (laughs) Because he'd be like, ah, yeah, you. (laughs) Come up here. I got something for you, Simeon. 
I've been over at the prison. This boy needs cell 1A. And, and so they leave Simeon in jail, and they begin, and now Joseph gives instructions to his servants, and he says, I want you to fill their, their sacks with grain, and I want you to put their money back in the top of their sack. So they head out, the nine brothers now, and they head out, and they camp for the first night, and they open up their sacks, and they go, what kind of witchcraft is this that our money is back in our sacks? Surely we are being punished for the treachery we committed against our brother Joseph. Bing, 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 bing. You got it right. More directly than you think. And they go home. And they explain to Jacob that they need to take Benjamin back to prove their innocence and to release their brother Simeon from jail. And Jacob, who hasn't learned much, says, Nope. We're going to sit right here. And we're going to eat this grain. And we're going to hope the famine ends. And they do. Simeon sits in jail. And they eat the grain until it's all gone and they're starving again. And now Jacob comes to the sons and says, you got to go back. we got to get more food. Famine's not over. And they say, we can't go back. We can't go back unless we take Benjamin. And the dad says, there's no way I'm letting Benjamin go. Benjamin is the only son I have left from my first love, Rachel. And no, he's not going. And so they wait him out. Finally, they're all so hungry that Jacob comes to the conclusion, well, Benjamin can die there, he can die here. So we we're all, might as well send him. And so now ten brothers head out again. And when they arrive, we're told that Joseph immediately recognizes them and he invites them to his home. And he releases Simeon from jail and he seats them in the order of their birth, oldest to youngest. He wants to see Benjamin, his full brother. He's not seen him for decades and decades. And so in order to be sure that he can see him and recognize him without having to ask too many questions that would create suspicion, he seats them in birth order. And then he comes and he has food from his own table served to each of the brothers until he comes to his brother Benjamin. And he gives him more and more and more than all the rest of them. And they're all looking and going, yeah, what's going on in And they begin to converse, and they begin to talk, and they begin to kind of share what's going on. And we're told that there's several times at which Joseph, who understands what they're saying, but they don't know that he understands what they're saying. He won't speak to them in their own language. That he has to leave the room and weep because his heart is breaking over this whole process. But he's not done. He's still not done with the story. So he loads him up with grain, and he tells his servant, put my personal cup in the cup of the youngest boy. And he lets him get a few hours lead on him. And then he sends his soldiers, and they track him down, and they say, what treachery have you done? You've repaid the kindness of the, the king of Egypt by stealing from him. We haven't stolen anything. We promise. In fact, if you find that cup among us, you can take that person and execute them, and the rest of us will live in slavery the rest of our lives. Okay. <laughs> Oldest to youngest, they open the pouches. They raise the last pouch with the cup, the pouch of Benjamin, and the brothers are devastated. Several say, take me instead. 
you cannot, you cannot take the youngest. It would kill our father. Take me instead. I'm going to leave the story right there. Next week, we're going to talk about the blind spot of reconciliation. Today, I want to talk about the blind spot of aggression. Uh, for all of us, we understand that when somebody has wounded us deeply and hurt us deeply, that something in us rises up. We, we want revenge. We, we, want, we want it, and we can couch that in a lot of language. We want it to be made right. We want justice. We want fairness. So this is our tendency as human beings, so much so that Jesus says, when you pray... I'm going to teach you to pray. When you pray, pray this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Forgive us this day our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. The Greek is really more explicit. Forgive us our debts. Forgive us the debts we have incurred as we forgive the debts that have been brought against us. And we know that, that Jesus has this, this mental picture in mind. So he speaks to us about prayer, that in this context of prayer, if you are praying at the altar and you remember you have something against your brother, leave your offering at the altar and go make it right with your brother. Then your Father in heaven will hear your prayers and forgive your sins. He connects these things. He connects these things. In fact, he, he, when Peter is trying to you know, say to Jesus, hey, I've learned a lot, I'm very, I'm very mature. Should I forgive someone seven times? Because the rabbi said forgive him three times. If you've forgiven somebody three times and they incur another problem, <laughs> obligation over. <laughs> three times, if you can't learn your lesson, you're out. That's what the rabbis taught. Jesus came along and said, no, nothing like that. And Peter, now having been around Jesus and knowing you've got to pray this way, if you have something against your brother, you know, should I forgive my brother seven times? That's double and one. <laughs> no, I tell you seven times 70. The last thing I want is a mentality that says I am keeping track of how many times I've forgiven you. I want a mentality of generosity. And then he tells this story. Imagine it's like this. It's like a king who was owed an unpayable debt. And, and it's hyperbole. I mean, the amount of money that this person owes the king, I don't even know how you would be able to incur such a debt. It's many lifetimes of income. In our terms, it's millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars. And he begs and says, I don't have the money. And the king says, okay, I forgive you. And he goes out and he finds someone who owes him one day's wages. And he says, have this man thrown in prison and don't let him out until he pays every penny. And the people watching go, what? you just got forgiven a debt that you couldn't possibly pay and you're going to have him put in prison over one day? And then Jesus looks at the crowd and says, this is what's going on between you and the father. The father in the spiritual realm, which is invisible, has forgiven you an enormous debt that you can't possibly pay, but you can't see it. So therefore, you don't feel it emotionally in the same way. So that when somebody in the physical world incurs a debt of one day, you're like, hey, I see that one. <laughs> that one hurt. This spiritual one, I can't feel nearly as much, but this one I feel a lot because he knows this is our tendency. And so there's this continuing idea as Jesus teaches that it's good for you and I to lay down this burden, to not carry it around, to not wear ourselves out and become weary carrying around this grudge. So, so at the beginning of the year, we, we did a little series called Behavior Spirituality in which we talked about the fact that the social sciences in the last 20 years have been paying attention to what's called positive psychology or moral psychology where the social sciences are now saying for you to be a well-adjusted human being there are virtues that you must practice 
Everybody remember that series? Be careful, my feelings are very, very sensitive. And we really just went through the list of virtues now that psychologists say, you know, one of them being forgiveness. And so uh, I thought, well, you know, we ought to think about that. But we just did it in January, and so it's probably still fresh in your minds, and I probably have to write new material. (laughs) So I thought, well, I'll just do a little research. So as I was doing a little research, I came across an article that was written by the staff at the Mayo Clinic. Now, you understand we're switching horses here. Does that make sense? So, so, so we were talking about the social scientists, and now we're talking about the medical scientists. And they wrote an article, and I decided that what I would do is steal it. Now, I don't often just read somebody else's material, but this morning I thought I'd make an exception. And I think as I read it, you'll understand why. This is written by, simply attributed in the website to the Mayo staff. Okay? Everybody with me? medicine, doctors, your physical health. Why is it so easy to hold a grudge? Being hurt by someone, particularly someone you love and trust, can cause anger, sadness, and confusion. If you dwell on hurtful events or situations, grudges filled with resentment, vengeance, and hostility can take root. If you allow negative feelings to crowd out positive feelings, you might find yourself swallowed up by your own bitterness and your own sense of injustice. Some people are naturally more forgiving than others. But even if you're a grudge holder, almost anyone can learn to be forgiving. What are the effects of holding a grudge? If you're unforgiving, you might bring anger and bitterness into every relationship and every new experience. You might become so wrapped up in the wrong that you can't enjoy the present. You might become depressed or anxious. You might feel that your life lacks meaning or purpose or that you're at odds with your own spiritual beliefs. You might lose valuable and enriching connectedness with others. Then the article asks this question, who hasn't been hurt by the actions or words of another? Perhaps a parent constantly criticized you growing up, a colleague sabotaged a project or your partner had an affair. Or maybe you've had a traumatic experience, such as being physically or emotionally abused by someone close to you. These wounds can leave you with lasting feelings of anger and bitterness, even vengeance. But if you don't practice forgiveness, you might be the one who pays most dearly. By embracing forgiveness, you can also embrace peace, hope, gratitude, and joy. Consider how forgiveness can lead you down the path of physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being. What is forgiveness? Forgiveness means different things to different people. Generally, however, it involves a decision to let go of resentment and thoughts of revenge. The act that hurt or offended you might always be with you, but forgiveness can lessen its grip on you and help free you from the control of the person who harmed you. Forgiveness can even lead to feelings of understanding and empathy and compassion for those that have hurt you. Forgiveness does not mean forgetting. It does not mean excusing the harm done to you or making up with the person who has caused that harm. Forgiveness brings a kind of peace that helps you go on with your life. What are the benefits of forgiving someone? Letting go of grudges and bitterness can make way for improved health and peace of mind. Forgiveness can lead to healthier relationships, 
improved mental health, less anxiety and stress and hostility, lower blood pressure, fewer symptoms of depression, a stronger immune system, improved heart health, and improved self-esteem. What if I don't want to forgive? Well, to move from suffering to forgiveness, you might, number one, recognize the value of forgiveness and how it can improve your life. In other words, step away from the personal nature of it and take a big look at the whole concept of forgiveness and why it's a good idea. <laughs> Even if in your personal situation it seems almost impossible. Number two, identify what needs healing and who needs to be forgiven and for what they need to be forgiven. Consider joining a support group or seeing a counselor. Acknowledge your emotions about the harm done to you and how they affect your behavior and work hard to release them. Choose to forgive the person who's offended you. Move away from your role as victim and release the control and power and, and the power of the offending person and the situation that it has had on your life. And so as we kind of think together, I just reflect on this little thing and I think, doesn't it sound scriptural? I mean, <laughs> release your grudges so that you can experience love, joy, peace. Does that sound familiar at all? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And it seems to me that you and I, we really do have deep hurts. I was talking with somebody after the first service who, who made the comment uh, about needing this today and about the fact that there's some deep things that have held on for a long time and, and as a long-term Christian, how hard it is to have this bitterness. And, and I just make this observation. You've been around church a long time. You know about this. And you sort of have a mindset of forgiving. And so if somebody gets inside your skin, something significant has happened. I mean, you know, we can let a lot of things go, but sometimes the hurt is so deep. And so I'm just going to invite you to bow your heads. The band's going to come back. But I just want to have a little time of guided prayer here as we close. Because I would really love it if you left a few things here today. If you left lighter than you came in. As we pray, just start by simply acknowledging that those feelings exist in you. And would you think specifically about the people and the circumstances that cause you the most pain? The places where you get hung up. Gather them all up. For some of us, they're very specific. Faces and names and moments in time. For others of us, it's just some of the twists and turns of life. And the truth is, the person we're most bitter with is God. We've been in those days of a long, long time past. Two years later, five years later, ten years later. Sometimes just waiting in circumstances that are broken brings bitterness. Just acknowledge it. Gather it all up. 
Some of us will need a bucket. Some of us might need a wheelbarrow. Somebody might need a whole dump truck. God, as we gather these things together, I invite and ask whether we're praying in this room or on the Facebook feed, where you would empower us to let go. We acknowledge that in and of ourselves, we, we have a blind spot of aggression. The people who have hurt us, we, we wish you would give them what they deserve. But then we really are thankful that you show us mercy. So take our jumbled up, mixed up feelings and empower us to let go, to, to release the power that this hurt has on us and to release the power that these people have in our lives. Empower us with the ability to want to forgive, to want to move on, to want to heal. I pray that you would allow each of us to commit to a daily prayer, a daily prayer included in our time, bowing our heads and breathing a prayer that you would help us through this process of letting go, of forgiving. That you would take away our hearts of stone and replace them with hearts of flesh. That we'd be vulnerable again, that we'd be hopeful again, that we'd be optimistic again, that you'd release us from our anxiety and depression and you'd make us lighter. You'd take this burden. As we pray, if you feel you could lay some things down, I invite you in this moment to just lay them down. To visualize in your heart and your mind and your spirit that you're not going to carry this baggage one more day. You're going to leave it right here. You're going to walk out of this place lighter than you came in. God, we pray for healing. We pray for forgiveness over the wounds. And we respond to your word. We're going to stand in a moment and we're going to respond and we're going to sing. You delight in showing mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgment. And we're works in progress. And we know that not everything can happen in a single moment. But would you set us on a path towards a place of deep, deep healing, a place in which before reconciliation ever can take place, where we let go of the hurt and the pain and the desire for revenge. May it be so. May it be so according to your word. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And everybody said together, Amen. Will you stand as we respond to the word this morning? Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.